Well, podcast family, I'm very, very thankful for your patience as we get another podcast up and out. Because sometimes you just got to detach a little bit just to kind of catch your breath and get focused once again. Which is odd because I never stopped working. I mean, actually, I just finished my call week yesterday, which was Friday, May the 27th. But as I mentioned in my last little update, you know, with the issue in Uvalde and then we had our own stillbirth on our unit, it just kind of wore me out. But I'm thankful for great family, great friends, great support system that said, man, are you doing all right? And little honesties that said, no, I don't think so. I think I'm really tired. But I'm back and I'm happy to be with you guys back again. And as always, as life would have it, things come in threes, right? Did y'all notice that? Is that just a weird thing? Is that a myth or is that true? Because I think it's true course we had the horrible tragedy in Uvalde that's still being figured out and then we had our stillbirth which is another blow to our team and then no joke yesterday May the 27th we had a patient just come to the unit just for blood pressure monitoring at 29 weeks ended up finding severe microcephaly and oligohydramnios to the point of anhydramnios and other congenital issues I mean it's weird that was our third issue now remember, even though we take that hit, we take that burden as well as healthcare providers, whether you're a nurse or a physician or a PA, I mean, anybody in healthcare, we all feel and carry that pain for that patient. It's nothing like the pain, angst and frustration and disappointment that the patients themselves feel. So I do want to relay that to you all. I hope you never lose that empathy. I mean, I know we take things kind of deep and we do. And it's also healthy to detach a little bit because if not, it can kind of throw you for a loop like I was thrown for a loop just this week. This poor patient had no idea what was going on, even though somebody had told her on her one prior ultrasound at 18 to 20 weeks that this child looked slightly abnormal. But poor thing, I don't know if it was an education issue, if it was a a denial issue, but she was completely oblivious as to what's going on. And this child, this poor child, still in utero, obviously, has severe, severe poor prognosis. And the reason is this microcephalic finding. So I thought in this podcast, you know, we need to cover fetal microcephaly. So if you're about to take your oral boards or you've done your boards, you know it's going to pop up somewhere. This issue of fetal microcephaly is just rare enough to kind of throw you off your game when you're asked about it, but not so rare enough that we don't see it because we just had a patient yesterday in our labor and delivery unit. Y'all ready? Let's cover fetal microcephaly now. Life is too short and too unpredictable to go through without some sort of vision or passion. If you don't know what your passion is, find it now. This is our passion. This is Clinical Pearls. Now, before we get into the specifics of fetal microcephaly, I just want to set the stage of why this matters, because it's not just small head, right? I hate that term, microcephaly, small head. It makes it seem like, well, this is just a baby's head's kind of small. What does that have to do with anything? Well, the answer is, of course, it has to do with a lot, because head size is a surrogate marker. It's a proxy marker for what's going on within the head, and that matters completely. We're talking about fetal neural development. 55% of the human brain is made up of the cerebral cortex. So if we're talking about fetal microcephaly, we're talking about what's affected likely is the cerebral cortex. That's why the prognosis and the degree of affliction that the child will have is directly related to the amount of fetal microcephaly found. 
there are cases, it's true, of mild fetal microcephaly where the baby actually has very little limitation outside of just a small head. But in severe cases, we're talking about completely disabling, completely heartbreaking conditions. Fetal microcephaly is defined as a small head circumference diagnosed in utero or at birth. Although it's defined as a, quote, rare event, end quote, it actually occurs in six per 10,000 births in the U.S. And as I mentioned yesterday, I mean, we just diagnosed it ourselves on our unit. Identifying microcephaly is extremely important because the smaller the fetal head circumference, then the greater the risk of neurodevelopmental and intellectual delay. Although there is no specific treatment available for this condition, which just makes it all the more devastating, early diagnosis allows for timely investigations and it allows the parents time to receive the information, process, and then plan appropriately for what could be a very harsh prognosis. According to SMFM, fetal microcephaly is diagnosed when the head circumference is smaller than three standard deviations below the mean. Now, I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute, standard deviations? Where do we find that? I mean, we talk about head circumference in terms of millimeters, right? How big the circumference is or percentages. That's what Hadlock gives us. So to find the standard deviation, you actually have to go to a chart or to a perinatology calculator. It's fine. It's super easy. I have one on my phone. You can find it online. But remember that it's not necessarily a percentage below the norm. But if you ever ask on your oral boards, fetal microcephaly is defined as a head circumference less than three standard deviations below the mean. You can suspect it at two standard deviations below the mean, but it's actually diagnosed at three standard deviations below the mean. Making a prenatal diagnosis of microcephaly can actually be quite challenging for a variety of reasons. First, the patient could have uncertain gestational age. There's also a lack of a customized chart to account for factors like ethnicity. And of course, there's the absence of a routine third trimester scan where microcephaly can show as a significant lag behind other biometrics. Prospective observational studies have shown that ultrasound measurements themselves can have a lot of intra-observer and even intra-observer variations. So at times, the diagnosis may not be made until the time of birth. When doing the ultrasound and suspecting or making the diagnosis of fetal microcephaly, remember to take a detailed ultrasound scan of the intracranial structures. You've got to look for other fetal anomalies, including ventriculomegaly. Specific ultrasound markers that can point towards congenital infection include ventriculomegaly, echo-dense areas like calcifications, or overall growth restriction when you do the other biometrics. All right, now that we've settled that, let's get into the possible causes of microcephaly. Well, my goodness, if you were a medical student or a resident or in practice in the summer of 2015 going into 2016, then you're very familiar with Zika. I mean, this has been one thing after another, right? We deal with this coronavirus, but before that, we had Zika. Zika was actually first discovered in Brazil in July 15, 2015. Now, when I say discovered, I mean discovered of a new case because Zika has actually been around for decades. But when something is in the rainforest without people, it doesn't really cause any harm, does it? Well, of course, as we are one global community, what started in Brazil didn't stay there and, of course, came to the U.S. I remember when there was this huge move by SMFM, ACOG, and the CDC because Zika was causing havoc 
in pregnancy. And this wasn't just a female issue, but it actually had to do with the partner as well, because we later figured out that they may actually get transmitted in sperm. Can you believe that? So some crazy stuff out there. But the reason that it relates to the discussion of microcephaly is because the Zika congenital syndrome was hallmarked by severe microcephaly. That's heartbreaking. I mean, all over the world, there are these little babies affected by Zika congenital syndrome born with these microcephalic phenotypes that had horrible prognosis. I bring Zika up because we're in the section here about causes. And no, Zika isn't a pandemic anymore. It's not the numbers that we used to have. But it's still a consideration, especially in a patient who's from Brazil or another remote area in either South or Central America. But let's get into the main, the more traditional causes of microcephaly while we'll touch on Zika in just a minute. While Zika definitely stood in that limelight for fetal microcephaly, the truth is there's a broad range of heterogeneous conditions that can lead to fetal microcephaly. This includes specific gene disorders to whole chromosomal abnormalities. There's certain infections, exposure to toxins like alcohol. There's metabolic errors. Even fetal growth restriction can present with a form of fetal microcephaly. Or rarely, it can be a constitutional finding. Yep, can be a normal variant if the parents kind of have normal small heads, but they're otherwise okay. That could be a constitutional finding. Yeah, that actually is a published genetic cause of fetal microcephaly, constitutionally small head. Weird, huh? Fetal microcephaly can also be an isolated finding or it can be associated with a whole range of other abnormalities as part of a syndrome. It could be a syndromic condition. Let's say you're sitting for your oral boards and you know someone's going to ask you, well, in what percentage of cases do we actually have a true cause diagnosed for fetal microcephaly? You can sit back in your chair and go, well, actually, according to the data, we can find a true cause in about 50 to 60% of the cases. And I know it's only like about half, but the number can actually start to increase as new advances happen in genetic testing like whole exon sequencing and microarray chromosomal analysis. We're finding more ways to try to find the genetic cause, although remember that genetics or chromosomal issues is only one potential etiology. Let's cover this list in boxes for the potential etiology of fetal microcephaly. And it's very easy. We're going to put them in the two main boxes. Microcephaly alone or isolated, in other words, without associated malformations, or microcephaly with other malformations. For microcephaly without associated malformations, there's really just three main sub-boxes. The first is genetic conditions. There could be something like an autosomal recessive issue autosomal recessive primary microcephaly is the main cause of isolated microcephaly. There's also a condition called pain syndrome. That's P-A-I-N-E, not with a Y. So P-A-I-N-E. And of course, Alpers disease can cause microcephaly. The second subbox is environmental factors like maternal malnutrition or chronic hypoxia. And then the third that we like to stick things in, of course, is otherwise unknown. For microcephaly with associated malformations, the boxes tend to become more numerous. The first is still chromosomal or genetic issues, with the biggest being trisomy 13, trisomy 18, or even trisomy 21. 
There's also single gene defects that can cause microcephaly with other malformations. Think of Meckel-Gruber syndrome, Smith-Lemley-Opitz syndrome, Bloom syndrome, or Delange syndrome. A quick word about these genetic tests. We're going to get to that in just a minute when we talk about workup, but I don't want to lose that here because we talked about single gene defects. Remember that some non-invasive prenatal test companies or panels offer testing for single gene defects, but we have to remember that those are still considered screening. And for something as severe as microcephaly, while those tests can give some helpful information and it's a place to start, it does not replace the need for true genetic testing, which is either CVS, but that's done too early and this is not going to be found at that time, or amniocentesis. You really need an amnio and hopefully microarray analysis because we don't want to leave something to a screening test. We need to find a true diagnostic issue with fetal microcephaly. All right, so we covered the first box of chromosomal and then single gene defects. Next comes environmental causes. Remember, we're finding causes for microcephaly with associated malformation. Environmental issues could be even things like toxin exposure, primarily even alcohol. There's also intrauterine growth restriction as possible etiologies, prenatal infections like Toxo, CMV, we've already hit on Zika, and oddly even HIV is known to result in fetal microcephaly. There's also the exposure to Hydantoin or Dilantin. There is fetal Hydantoin syndrome, and this has been reported to result in fetal microcephaly. For other causes, you got to go back to biochemistry. Yep, there's inborn errors of metabolism, like maternal PKU. PKU can cause this. Phenylketonuria syndrome, so remember to ask about these things and test if you suspect that this is what's going on. And as we had for microcephaly without associated malformations, the last little sub-box is the unknown etiology box. Now let's get into specific testing to try to figure out which one of these boxes is responsible. You got to sit down with the patient and talk to her about the severity and the importance of this find. Then you go in to offer a specific kind of tests. I know torch testing kind of sucks because they're so nonspecific. Even if you find an IgG result, who knows if that's a long-standing previous exposure or something that's actually causing this issue. But torch and HIV screening can be done to try to point you in the right direction, although mainly it's non-diagnostic. It's also recommended to get amniocentesis for the genetic conditions that we talked about, and then you can send that amniotic fluid for specific infectious disease testing. That's the best way to try to figure out what's going on. Torch can give you an idea, but amnio is good not just, of course, for genetic information, but for infectious etiologies as well. Zika serology testing may be indicated based on where her recent travel has been or where she's from. But wait, there's more. Outside of the genetic value of amniocentesis and the search for an infectious etiology, amniocentesis can also help you find inborn errors of metabolism. Yeah, you can do a maternal screen based on her serum for that, but amnio can actually also be helpful to check for inborn errors of metabolism. But you have to send it to a specific lab and you have to tell them specifically what you're looking for. 
If you're ever asked how amniocentesis can help find a metabolic condition, we'll tell them that the most common approach for fetal diagnosis of an inborn error of metabolism has to do with the demonstration of specific enzyme deficiencies in cultured amniotic fluid cells. Boy, that's how you stump your professor, right? So yes, you can do a screen of the child when it's born. However, for in utero detection, amniocentesis isn't just a genetic test. It's not just an infectious etiology test, but can also help find specific enzyme deficiencies. What about the use of fetal MRI? Some experts recommend a fetal MRI, but others don't. Those who don't recommend it say, well, how does that add to anything else? While those who do recommend it say you can get a much better idea of the intracranial structures that could lead to prognostication. So I do like a fetal MRI. I think it's helpful. But remember, that's not considered traditional. That's considered extra or ancillary because ultrasound is the primary way to diagnose this. Let's wrap this up by covering up prognosis and options for delivery. Microcephaly, either isolated or with other anomalies, as long as they're not lethal anomalies, is associated with significant increased risk of neurodisability. And after appropriate counseling by a multidisciplinary team, some have even considered offering termination of pregnancy with severe microcephaly because of the severe impact of quality of life and this chronic disabling condition. Obviously, that gets into the specific moral issues of the healthcare provider and of the patient. But once again, you know, that's a little controversial. I'm not going to get into that here. But some have offered termination of the pregnancy, not as an elective issue, but as a medical necessity. If there's just no visible developmental area of the baby's brain. Here's why this is controversial, because it really does depend on the degree of microcephaly. The prognosis for a fetus with microcephaly could range from actual normal development to a wide range of neurodisability, depending on factors like severity of microcephaly, the underlying cause, and presence or absence of vital intracranial structures. A retrospective study found a lack of data on how to actually counsel patients when isolated microcephaly is detected incidentally in the second or third trimester with no other abnormalities. Although fetal MRI is offered in the presence of other malformations, sometimes even a combination of MRI and an ultrasound scan is just not helpful in counseling parents about the prognosis. In a large retrospective study that evaluated close to 700 cases of postnatal microcephaly, 29% of cases had an underlying genetic etiology. Although the outcome of patients with non-isolated microcephaly varies widely, neurodevelopmental delay, intellectual disability, and refractory epilepsy were the most common reasons for referral to specialists in pediatrics for further evaluation. A few studies have tried to investigate the correlation between neurodevelopmental delay and isolated microcephaly, but they've had conflicting results. One study showed that the risk for neurodevelopmental delay to be about 10% when head circumference is between 2 and 3 standard deviations below the mean, while others have showed no significant difference in that range. But without doubt, neurodevelopmental delay does obviously increase past that 10% mark when the standard deviation is below the third standard deviation below the mean.
Although fetal brain growth cannot be altered, there are some interventions carried out postnatally after delivery that help prevent the progression of microcephaly, but only in certain conditions. For example, dietary interventions in infants diagnosed with PKU or enhancing postnatal nutrition if microcephaly is thought to be due to severe maternal malnutrition. This can enhance head circumference, and that's actually been shown in previous data, although that data has been retrospective in design. A review of the literature has shown that infants with microcephaly due to congenital CMV infection or syndromes like Delange syndrome can actually benefit from early interventional programs and occupational therapy. Well, that's a wrap. We've covered fetal microcephaly either in isolation or associated with other congenital anomalies. I want to thank you all for sending me some Facebook direct messages during this last week. I know I did my update and it kind of freaked some of you all out like, oh, is he okay? Yes, I'm fine. I just need to detach a little bit, but I'm back. (laughs) Because the truth is, look, there's so many things that we still have to be thankful for. So many things that we have to have love for and our passion for. And I'm thankful for you guys. Anyway, y'all are great. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you for what you do. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.